The Brown Sign Project podcast is proudly supported by Stephen Spencer and Associates. There's reopening, then there's building back better, then there's creating a sustainable future business model. From managing change to customer experience design and brand communication, our innovation toolkit helps visitor attractions and destinations build forward better. Welcome to the Brown Sign Project, bringing together tourism professionals from around the world to share what they love about the attractions industry and to inspire the next generation of industry leaders. So what are we waiting for? Let's get on with today's episode. The Brown Sign Project Podcast. Hi there and welcome to the Brown Sign Project. Um, Today we're talking about actually the content of your tourist attractions. So we know we've talked previously in episodes about what supports people actually coming to your attraction. We've talked about what happens when they're queuing um, and how we can kind of combat that um, dislike of queuing, although you know Lois and I love a bit of queuing. Um, Today we're going to actually talk about the kind of content in the uh, experience sandwich. So what actually happens once you're inside? Um, And then we know that in future episodes, we've got the joy of the gift shop to come and some lovely marketing talk, but we'll get there when we get there. Joining us today, I've got Joe and Rachel. Joe and Rachel are going to introduce themselves shortly, Um, but just to say they are both experts in their field and they both work in the field of curation, but in very different ways. So we're going to talk a little bit about curating experiences and making sure people get lovely content when they enter your tourist attraction. So I'm going to come to you first, Rachel, if you just want to introduce yourself. Hello, um, I'm Rachel and I am the manager of Historic Royal Palaces at Kew. Um, and it's kind of a, a bit of a general manager role, I suppose. It's the smallest kind of branch of the Historic Royal Palaces family, which is the independent charity that manages the Tower of London and Hampton Court, amongst other things. So um, it's a small site with a small team, but a great kind of management role um if, if you want to just look after everything which is kind of what i get to do um and outside of that i have a blog called the recovery room which is a free website with loads of resources around kind of reopening and recovery post pandemic for the museums and heritage sector um so i sort of put resources on there as and when and yeah that's me excellent thank you um and we're going to talk a little bit about the um exhibition which is finishing very very soon um, so people probably won't be able to catch it by the time uh, this airs, but we've been talking about sort of kind of difficult content and how we might uh, talk about some experiences that people maybe might find a little less comfortable um, than some of the things we talk about when spending our leisure time in. So really interesting. And then also we have Joe. Joe, do you want to tell us about yourself? Sure. Hi, Colly. Uh, I'm Joe. I'm a marine biologist and public aquarium consultant, and I specialise in the uh, design, development and opening of, of new public aquaria. Um, so that's everything from, uh, you know, the type of tanks and animals that you find in the aquarium through to the, the actual setup and delivery of that as, a, as, a, as an operating attraction and then opening that attraction to the public and, and training teams and, and uh turning it into an operating aquarium. Awesome. Um, yeah, and for those of you who have uh, been on the podcast for a little while, been listening for a little while, you'll recognise Joe uh, from a previous careers episode. Uh, so Joe is our first returner, I believe. So that's quite exciting. Yes, in the bag. <laughs> friend, official friend of the pod, Joe Lavery. Um, <laughs> excellent. So um, thanks, Faith. It's really, really great to have you both on board and I think when we first kind of cooked up this episode and thought when what do we talk about when we talk about content 
um, people tend to think about kind of spending their leisure time in a certain way and it being a fun day out and all that sort of stuff. So I wanted to sort of pick that idea apart as to actually how big a piece of the experience is the content. Actually, you know, what when I choose to go for a day out somewhere, how much realistically does the experience itself matter? Um, rather than, you know, the content of the gift shop or how good the website is and, and all those things. And it's important that those things match up. So just a really, uh, hopefully, interesting conversation to, to get us through there. Um, so the big question we're asking is that how important is the attraction content itself? Um, so actually what we would term, I guess, the experience, although the experience is of everything, in my opinion, but we'll get into that. Um, and my first question is then how important is curation in the experience that once I'm in the building, how much does it matter that that experience is kind of set out in a certain way? So I'm going to come to Rachel first on that one. So if you want to talk to us about um, content and, and its role in experience, that'd be awesome. Probably the first thing to try and define is what we mean by curation. Um, I mean, I sort of had a slight heart attack at the start there where you said that I was involved in curation because I think my fellow curators at HRP would... <laughs> we had this discussion when when joe came on the um the careers episode is that what you know your what is your definition of curation because yeah. to be a curator having worked in sea life as joe has is that they're people who look after animals and that's yeah. a really different concept to what you would get you know if you started talking to the curators of hrp or the vna yeah, or actually, the science museum they're definitely yeah. not those curators when I was at the Natural History Museum, curator was a sort of, was a collections manager. They were in charge of a particular scientific type of collection. At HRP, they're the sort of research powerhouse behind kind of our knowledge as an organization. So we have a very specific kind of curatorial department. And I know that some of their pet hates is when curate gets used in a sort of pop culture where like you talk about walkers having curated a new range of crisps or something. <laughs> am, I, am I gonna get hate mail from them? Maybe. But I think that you can also talk about, and, and I would say that this is part of my job is to curate, and I'm using it in the way that my curators hate, the visitor experience um, of, 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 you know, somebody's day out at Q Palace, for example. Um, so, so in that sense, it is very important. But I think in terms of content, um, it really depends who you are. If you're somebody like me who's very ops focused, then I will be sort of spending more of my time thinking about all the facilitation things that you need in terms of the queuing, the ticketing, you know, the toilets, that all to me is, is something that you, you're always championing because it never gets as much attention as the content. Whereas if you're working on the content side of things, you tend to think that really that's only the sort of thing that matters. And the truth is, of course, that it's somewhere in between. And especially if you are, um, you know, a, a sort of charitable mission-based organization, the content is, is what it's all about because you have this mission to either educate or inspire or change people's minds about a particular topic. And so that's kind of what you're trying to get to. But what you must never forget is that none of that stuff can exist without all those support services that are around it. So yeah, like with the answers to most difficult questions, it's somewhere in between, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, nicely sitting on the fence, but also shout out to any curators who want to send me hate mail. That's fine. <laughs> um, and Joe, obviously, we you know we talk about kind of Rachel just mentioned their kind of mission based and that sharing of, and I mean in in Aquaria that's a given. Like you have to do that to even be a licensed aquarium, right? So where do you kind of sit on that that thought process? 
you know, I take, I guess, kind of a simple worldview of this. You know, if people go to a pub for the beer, then, then you know, the content in an attraction is is the beer in the pub. You know, people are coming for that curated content. And and I think having having clearly defined missions is part of that. In a zoo and an aquarium, as you say, you know, it's even more important because there's a, there's a legal mandate to do so. But I think it's also the right thing to do. You know, there's certainly a spectrum of, of, um, of attractions, in, of animal attractions. And a lot of them, you know, put the animals first and there's, there's not much narrative or, or um, you know, conservation content there. I think it's important to, to give people what they expect, which is the, the animals and the exhibitions they come for, but then also to give them the things they might not expect, which is the, you know, those kind of stories that sit behind them. Um, and, and I think, you know, uh, a good and diverse curatorial team is, you know, really important to deliver that, um, that kind of spectrum of, of content across the, the, the animals, the exhibitions and the, you know, the kind of the conservation stories. Rachel said something quite interesting, which I want to come back to, which I think is about how it's supported by the rest of the experience. So, um, and you, you mentioned toilets, which again is like the, the, when we talk about having experiences in spaces, people sort of glance over that, but those basics are the foundations of your, you know, you can't be having a good time if you're worried about the facilities or how do I get there or how do I get around or whatever it might yeah. be. So. And actually the, what I also should have said was that I think definitely the content is, is, is it changes in importance depending on who your visitor is. And I'm a big fan of um, John Falk and his kind of model of, you know, identity related visit motivations so that you're, you're, you're choosing to visit a, a museum or attraction for, for, for lots of different reasons. It might be because you just want to, you know, you're trying to facilitate a family day out. And then in, in that circumstances, in that circumstance, the, 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 um, the, some of the facilities that you need to give your family that day out without any issues become really important. And actually the content sometimes, and, and sometimes, you know, when I'm looking, okay, my parents are coming to London, what am I, I need something, I need something in this area that I can take them to. And actually the content becomes less important because you just are looking for somewhere that you can have that experience as a family. Whereas if you are, um, one of um, Falk's categories is um, somebody who's super interested in the, the content, a real sort of you know, uh, I can't remember the actual name of the category, but somebody who is um, has a very specific interest, um, they will be super interested in the content and they might not even go to the gift shop. They're just they're there to see something very specific. And, and that is the most important thing for them. So where a visitor's rate, the importance of the content will differ depending on why they've chosen to come to see you. Yeah, we um, I'm working on a site at the moment and they're a family based attraction. and we're, you know, we're talking about all this amazing kind of visitor experience stuff that they're doing and this really great content. And the most common thing we have talked about is, can we put toilets in the car park? <laughs> like genuinely, because you like, say that there's, there's things that matter to certain people. And if you're going to talk to young families that have driven a you know, fair way to come and visit you, that's the first thing they're thinking about. And you know, if you're taking your parents out for the day, probably thinking about you know where can we get a coffee and where will there be cake and you're probably not thinking that much about the, the content itself mm. or, or thinking you know the, the content is definitely secondary to, to the other parts of the experience you're having definitely uh, those are really good points I, I, I think you're right I think there are certainly some sort of hygiene factors that sit aside that you know as, um, the content and, and I think Rachel's point is is really valid as well there are certainly people that 
probably care more about those things than they do the the content yeah we used to have a oh well I had a rule I don't know if it's a general rule but when I was uh recruiting for animal-based attractions was that if you said during your interview I just really loved the animals that you probably weren't the right person for the job is that there's there's a place for really you know having a, a real specific interest in the content mm. but if you're actually just trying to deliver the overall experience then your real niche interest in the subject can actually be a bit of a barrier sometimes for people who maybe don't have that level of knowledge or yeah you look for an interest in people more than in the subject matter of of whatever the attraction is yeah absolutely um mm. joe i want to come back to you then with the second question so we were talking about difficult subjects and subjects that might be quite you know whether it's big and unwieldy subjects or just subjects that are hard to talk about because they're emotional whatever it might be mm. um and obviously you work in an area that you know we're talking about conservation we're talking about threat of extinction how do you what would you share with people when you when you talk about kind of the balance of that conservation message yeah i think this is this is one of the most interesting things about you know certainly um conceiving a, a an animal exhibition you know as you say it's like a lot of things in life i think it, it's about balance right so it's important to to kind of raise these difficult subjects so let's take shark finning as an example um you know it's important to to bring that to the forefront and let people know that that's happening and and you know quite how horrible it is um but then if you you know if you're too worthy or too doom and gloom about it nobody will want to visit you know they won't want to come back and they won't, won't want to engage with that in the first place and and you know who, who, who can blame them um so I, I think it's important to tell these stories in the right way to connect with visitors to inspire people um, to challenge people and you know in practice that might mean when you're talking about let's say coral reef extinction you know coral bleaching um you might show off the the kind of beauty of a healthy reef and tell people about um about what's happening to our reefs in the wild and the impact that that's having on the environment and on humans and on the wider world um but then show people the fantastic way that that um, the fantastic work that's being done, the fantastic research that's being done, you know, the, the work of conservation scientists and and to give visitors ways that they can help or or inspire them to, to kind of go out and, and learn more. So I think, you know, we all walk a fine line. Some people might feel that we're too forceful with some of those messages and, and a lot of people probably feel that we don't bring them home enough, um, but it's a balancing act. And I think I think that's one of the hardest things that you do as a curator is to kind of walk that line in the right way um knowing that you won't please all of the people all of the time rachel obviously you you probably just need to give us a bit of a preamble as to what your most recent exhibition is at, at q palace um to kind of explain why you the content might be slightly more difficult or slightly um i don't want to say hard because it's not it's not hard but to be able to explain it in a way that you know is not a light touch. I think, so yes, maybe. it's it's quite emotional content. Um, yeah. So a bit of context. Q Palace is kind of best known probably for being the home of George III, um, and who is kind of famous in history for either losing America or for his mental illness. And uh, if you've seen Blackadder, Hamilton, you'll see how that subject matter doesn't tend to get 
treated in cultural references with a lot of sensitivity. I would so, I will jump in there and say though that he is the best character in Hamilton. He is, I, yes. And I do ah. intend one day to go to a costume party dressed fully as, as him because it's just amazing. But well, if you need yeah. any costume, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Although I mean, in Hamilton, he is a comedy character, you know, and there's there's lyrics, certain lyrics in his songs, like "You're making me insane," "You're driving me mad," that sort of thing, that show that you know it's still treated as a joke, even in in, in super up to date stuff. Obviously, things like Blackadder, where he's um, it's really not <laughs> not particularly a sensitive portrayal of him, um, is, is slightly different. Um, but but anyway, this felt like a, a good time to really look at that whole story again because it's um, now two hundred, actually two hundred and one, because obviously we missed last year, years since he died. Um, so Q Palace was important because it's where he came for treatment and recovery during his periods of um, mental and physical ill health, and so it's a, a really big story um, at Q Palace, and it's not something that we've kind of looked at in depth before. I think because we were very keen to be sort of pointing out that there was more to him than that. Um, this year we've launched an exhibition called The Mind Behind the Myth and it's looking at his treatment, his experience and also kind of using it to shine a bit of a light on contemporary mental health. So when we're looking at the historic objects we worked with a community group of men who all have experience of mental ill health and they helped us interpret that exhibition, um, sort of drawing out some of the themes that are really relevant, like diagnosis, and um, and actually writing some of the object labels for the historic exhibition. And then on the top floor of the palace, we have we asked um, people to lend us objects that talk about their mental health, just in the same way that we do with George on the floors below. And so we have ten objects that um, are displayed just with the the stories of the people who, who have loaned them in their own words and telling us them, you know, their mental health stories. And some of them are very emotive. We have objects there that relate to very difficult subjects like suicide and child abuse. And um, there's one particular uh, object, which is a skateboard that was lent to us by the Ben Ramers Foundation. And it was um, Ben Ramers skateboard and he's a skateboarder who took his own life. And that is accompanied by some film footage of Ben. And, you know, we keep tissues up there because it has very extreme reactions, but actually at the same time, amazing feedback and something that, you know, the relevance of it is, is, is very obvious, particularly kind of post COVID. And it's, it's yeah. just had an amazing kind of reaction from people. Um, unfortunately, it's closing on Sunday. So I think when people hear this, they'll have already we, missed it. We need a, we need a rerun, I think. I'm yeah. sure you've got something really exciting in store for next year, but maybe maybe we can have a rerun. Of that. Well, actually, if you go to the HRP website and go on the Q Palaces page, a lot of our lenders have done videos about their objects. So you can oh, see yeah. a lot of that content online, which is really great as well. Excellent. That's really cool. Um, and yeah, I mean, you just made me, you made me think of, of two books, actually, that I think are really um, worthwhile to kind of mention. So one is um, Joe Pine's um, The Experience Economy, which is essentially about us moving from, you know, we used to buy commodities. That was our kind of, you know, the, the fun thing that we did, we bought commodities. And then we now are starting to buy experience, but also then we're moving into a point where that experience has to really change us. We're not, we're not really into just sort of turning up and having a good time in, the, in a lot of ways when we're looking at getting really, um, great experiences or experiences that really stay with us we're not talking about going and just riding a roller coaster or going and watching a film 
um, you know, that, that just tides us over. We're talking about going and really experiencing something that changes the way that we think or the way that we feel about something. Mm -hmm. And I think both of you um, are kind of work in that space of, you know, you can come away and sort of think, oh, I'm going to do something differently now. Um, and that that's going to become more important, I think, as, as people's uh, leisure time gets squeezed and as people's leisure time becomes more important to them, um, that actually they're looking for stuff that really, you know, changes them really deep seated kind of emotional change and then the other book that I just want to shout out if people haven't read this it's a really great book with um, Nina Simon um, The Art of Relevance which is about really kind of making your attraction your space fit your community and serve your community and you know you talk about really kind of working with people who have been through that trauma that process um, and have real lived experience and bringing them into the fold so that they can tell their own stories. And I, I think it's the only museum book where I've cried most of the way through. <laughs> Going, this was meant to be work related and I'm just sobbing. Um, but yeah, it's a really, it's a really great book to read around kind of. That is a great book. And actually the, the Nina Simon book was definitely a sort of a bit of an inspiration for me in this exhibition, but also um, the Anarchist Guide to the Historic House Museum by Franklin Fagnone, which is, um, a brilliant book that really makes you question if you have a historic house museum what is the point of it and the answer to that question is often going out into your community and finding out what is needed. I think we were very lucky to, at Q Palace to have this sort of ready-made story that is so relevant which made everything a lot easier but um, our community team HRP did a fantastic job of connecting with um, groups that already existed in the community that were very willing and able to come in and, and sort of talk to us and, and to lend objects. Um, one of the best things about it, I think, is that we now have a uh, relationship with these lenders. So some of the people who lent us objects come in every week and sort of know us and, and, and talk to the staff. And that's been a really nice part of that process. It, it now feels like Q Palace, despite being a royal palace, is much more there for its kind of local community right. and I guess the community in, in general more than it ever, ever has been before. And Joe, that that also just made me think of, you know, when we talk about collections, I, and I think it's hard, we talk about collections, but people don't, when we talk collections, they don't really think of animals, which is <laughs> always an odd one. Um, but, you know, about having that local, how often do you go, I mean, it happens less now, I think, but how often do you go to aquariums and find that they're stocking, and again, stocking, it, it sounds so awful to say it for animals, but... <laughs> That, you know, it does that is, sound very inanimate. <laughs> yeah, inanimate, um, definitely. But, uh, you know, about stocking creatures that don't, you know, that you wouldn't find in that area of the world or, you know, do you think that that, again, that's changing? Do you think people are becoming more focused on, you know, here and now and this is the community? Yeah, I think there's always been, um, I think there's always been an interest in, you know, visiting a zoo or aquarium and learning more about animals that you find you know, maybe not in your community, but certainly in your region, your part of the country, wherever you might be. Um, I think that's definitely that's definitely starting to become, you know, uh, more of an interest for people. Um, I, I think I told this story in the, on the, the last episode that I did, but, you know, I, I remember really vividly working at an attraction and having a school group come in and this school group were riotous in, in the, the Rockpool area. And the teacher explained it was because they'd never been to the seaside before. You know, they're an underprivileged group of school children. And, and actually, I think it's 
you know, because of that, it's ever more important to give people from the local area, like I say, the local region, maybe not necessarily the immediate community, but um, people in your catchment, the opportunity to see animals that they they might not have before or they might not get the opportunity to. Um, and I do think it's really important, you know, just as a, as a point of principle to, if you're going to show animals from places like Australia or, or Indonesia or, or whatever, that you also um, represent, you know, your own species and your own environments. Or at least tell the stories of, you know, this isn't just an attractive, cool animal. This is, you know, the region that it lives in and this is the, the like, you know, this is what matters to those people and, and the animals in those places. I think that's... Com- completely. And, you know, it's interesting that um, most people don't know, but we've got lots of cold water reefs off the, the coast of the UK. And, and it's interesting that most people probably know more about you know the the threats to coral reefs in in Australia than they do about the reefs you know on the the Irish Shelf. Um, so so totally, I think you know we, we absolutely have a duty to kind of tell those stories um, and and especially the you know the more difficult stories. So I guess that that kind of we we we're finished on animals, but we're going to talk about kind of the humans next. Um, which, <laughs> again, you know, it, it's always a thing when you talk about aquariums and you say what's the most important thing, and people say you know that the fish or the animals is actually you know it, it's really hard to run an aquarium without the people though <laughs> you know um and how much Absolutely. do you think those team members have an impact in you know one in sharing those stories but also in the the experience and the, the experience that people have of the content i think uh, you know the, the team have everything to do with to do with the experience um i think you know the content can stand on its own but but actually you know first of all people are probably the first touch point you have when you go to an attraction right so um unless you're unless you're going through in a you know an automated system people are probably the you know the first part of the attraction that you encounter um and they they impact your you know you know your mindset everything from their kind of neuro-linguistic cues the way they're standing you know the the look they've got on their face and the way they greet you um to the to the words that they say but then once you're into the attraction actually you know certainly for an animal attraction um the the people in the team are, are absolutely critical because they know things that that aren't shown on the interpretation around uh, you know around a around a building so for example you know where the animals came from and i don't mean what part of the country or what ocean they came from but you know were they born here or did, did they come from another aquarium or another zoo um you know uh, what's their name are they you know, were they someone's pet? There are all those stories that I think are really important and they come from people generally rather than, than interpretation. Um, and I think, as you say, you know, certainly in a zoo or an aquarium, um, the, the teams are the ones that look after the animals and having that connection with members of the public and with visitors um, allows them to, to kind of, you know, get across some of those stories that won't otherwise be, be present. Yeah, I think people love to know like you say, where animals come from. It's like, what, you know, especially with the, the really big animals, you know, the, the, the dolphins or the whales or the turtles, the, the, the kind of big standout that, that most attraction, most uh, aquariums will have is that people love to, you know, they want to get to know them a little bit. And that's not something you can necessarily get across like you're saying, in interpretive boards or whatever it might be. True, yeah, and you know, I think it's just it's just human nature to anthropomorphize things, and and actually to, you know, to to know that um, that particular shark really enjoys, 
you know crabs or he doesn't like doesn't like mackerel or he's a really fussy eater you know or um swims in a certain part of the tank because he prefers it over that i think like those sort of stories are really interesting um and they also help people connect to the animal more and to the the kind of stories that that you you want to convey and rachel i know you're really like the mother hen of your team i think it's probably the right term. I'm sure that's what they say about you. Um, I, I don't think it is, but uh, <laughs> I've not thought of that phrase before. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of you, you have a relatively small, but very, very passionate team. And I think for anyone that kind of follows you on, on social media, you're always kind of around you. So it knows what that team means to you and what that team means to the experience. Um, yeah, well, I think... You're right, we've got a small team this year, a smaller team than we normally have. Um, because of the pandemic, we've had to really scale down our operation and it's gone from, I think, about 25 hosts to eight. Um, I, I should say without losing people because we do a, we have a seasonal recruit every year. Um, but it has been amazing this year to go through this exhibition with this team. Um, and, and, and part of why I'm so invested in it is because I know how powerful that human interaction is in the exhibition. You know, we have object labels and we have interpretation panels but you only have so much space on there our mission with this exhibition was to change how people think not just about George III but about mental health in general and I really question how effective it in sort of static interpretation can be in doing that I think real change really can only come from interactive discussions with people and to give you an example um, one of the themes in the exhibition is the importance of diagnosis and um, when we were working with our um, community group, one of the really interesting conversations that we had was around diagnosis. And they were saying that sometimes when they were ill, they felt that diagnosis was more important for other people than them. So, I mean, obviously it was important that they get the right treatment, but they felt that other people were more comfortable once they kind of could label them and be like, okay, I understand what that is. It's something that you can Google. Um, but actually it doesn't change their experience. And so it was more important for other people than it was for them. And so that really chimed with me because the question that everybody asks about George when they come into the palace was, well, what was wrong with him? And there's so many different theories about that that would take way too long to go into now, but the truth is that we don't really know. And so um, by involving the hosts in those conversations with those community groups during their kind of induction period, it means that they can take that question, which should have quite a black and white answer, but doesn't, and actually move it into what diagnosis means today, how people who are mentally unwell feel about that, or how our community group anyway felt about that, and sort of turn it back on ourselves and ask people, well, why, why do we need to know? Why do we need to know what was wrong with George? Why is it a mystery that needs to be solved? And actually, should it be more about thinking about his experience and the experience of people around him? And so that is just not a conversation you could have on an interpretation panel. It needs to be a conversation amongst people. And I think stuff like that is, is why we have really been able to change how people think about it. So the, the power that they have, if they are properly trained and if they're properly supported, because actually talking about mental health all day is a hard thing to do. Um, it, it, you know, it's so, so worth investing in that because it's, it's really where you get your big change from. Yeah. And I think I, again bringing kind of it back to it can be any difficult content there are always messages that are difficult to get across there are conversations that are difficult to have even in the, you know what you think is a pretty kind of 
chill attraction that you think oh the content in here can't really offend anyone is that actually you will come across people for who it is more affecting um and making sure those teams are supported is definitely um the, the right thing to do you know proper induction and making sure that they have the tools that they need and spaces where they can go and i mean even just dealing with complaints of people day to day without adding that additional layer of mm. um difficult content i think you know we're very quick to in some cases to put people out in front of the public and the public are, can be difficult <laughs> you know really difficult yeah. without without adding a layer of kind of contentious content i guess mm. and then what happens with this exhibition is because people are kind of more comfortable talking about themselves if they've had a sort of ramp up with with the history of it that they end up disclosing things to our, our team on the floor and they're sort of saying oh this happened to me or oh yeah i relate to that because you know my father was ill and did it you know and all of a sudden they're making this quite personal disclosure to you and you know if you're one of my hosts you're standing in sort of full georgian costume not quite sure what to do so we had to make sure that you know particularly this year when we're really going for it with the mental health storyline to make sure that they did know what to do and to make sure that they had that all that proper training and i think a big part of that was realizing that we're not experts in that and so we partnered with uh, lots of different organizations um including uh, the campaign against living miserably to deliver training to our team and ongoing support throughout the season that meant that they were supported with that yeah i think um that partnering as well really key and I think um, Joe would echo that when we talk about um, dealing with content that maybe is a bit more specialist so it, whether that's overfishing or let's say shark finning what, whatever it might be is that those partner organizations can really make a difference to sort of support the overall message. Yeah absolutely and I think Rachel you know what you're talking about is is even more than that it's about giving the teams kind of the tools to have those different conversations and to make sure that they're okay as well which I think is you know absolutely critical when when that's the subject matter mm. and yeah. I think it's only going to become more critical you know we're in a period of kind of these these culture wars at the moment where almost anything can become a hot topic in a heritage attraction yeah. um, they're, they're going to get asked these questions they're and you know, if, if we do want to sort of change minds and there's research out there that says that we can change minds, that there's lots of minds that haven't been made up, that, that the public are not quite as, you know, extreme in their opinions as sometimes the media likes to make us think. There was some great research from uh, BBA BDRC that came out last week that was a, basically showed that, you know, people are much more neutral about these things and people are much more supportive of things like uh, links to slavery being brought out than, you know, we, we might think that when we're on Twitter. There's definitely open minds out there that, that are willing to have conversations and find out more. And it's only going to be more important to have those reasoned, nuanced conversations in, you know, heritage sites and museums. Um, and that's that's really the only way we can kind of combat these endless media frenzies of, you know, the culture wars. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely um, on topic. I think that they, as well, the, the whole thing around mental health uh, a mental illness is, you know, coming out of the pandemic as well. I mean, everybody's had a pretty tough time of it the last few years. So I can imagine that just people in general coming to something that can be quite emotional actually have quite a lot of emotions just to get out, even if they don't necessarily have a an association with the content. I imagine mm. that that's been quite a year <laughs> for quite yeah. a lot of people. Mm. Excellent. And and so my next question really is is a bit of a departure from from the people and this is really around I, you touched on it earlier Rachel actually about the commercial aims of an organization um 
And so, you know, it, it's fine to be worthy and have this amazing content, but actually, how does that relate to, you know, essentially funding your mission and, and, and how that um, finding the money to do what you need to do to support your communities to do the work actually kind of where how do you feel about kind of the links between the commercial parts of the organization do you think that that's changing or what's your experience of commercial versus content before we started recording i mentioned i'd done three weeks at madden Tussauds. Apart from that, I've only ever worked for um, charitable organisations that, in terms of attractions, and so, and there's, I, I almost feel that that is, you know, there's, there's so, there's, there's such a link between the commercial and the charitable aims because all the money you're making is just going back into to progressing those charitable aims. I think as well, um, what we're doing with this exhibition, which which never had a commercial purpose, really, was that actually we do serve as a bit of a front window for historic royal palaces because. We're, we're almost not part of historic royal palaces because you have to, you pay to come into Kew Gardens, which is a separate organisation from us, even though we're inside it. Um, and then your entrance into Kew Palace is included in your Kew Gardens ticket. So as a result, we get lots of non-traditional historic royal palaces um, visitors. So my view is that if we are showing them something they like, that they, then they may think, ah, maybe I should visit other historic royal palaces venues. So that's kind of in terms of us being commercial that's really where I kind of see our purpose is, is to sort of be that front window I think the exhibition that we've got on at the moment is I guess I'm being biased but it's the best thing we've ever done in the organization I think um and so it, I mean it's, it's groundbreaking for HRP this is the, an organization that has the crown jewels in a display case and on the top floor of our palace we've got a skateboard and a plastic bag and a heap of line bars you know it's it is groundbreaking for us to be able to sort of push the boundaries like that in a way that you know displays historic royal palaces in a slightly new light for new visitors it is only going to bring us good things i think and so it's had a sort of um un unintended almost commercial aim i guess um and then joe i'm, I'm gonna because i mean essentially there's a lot of aquarium in the world that there's a lot of money in in aquariums um and oh, yeah. there are obviously you know what I would kind of tend the, the private aquariums which are you know the, the really big for profit um but there's obviously a lot of kind of um non-profit aims as well that, that kind of get linked in there I think that it depends really on the the market is kind of my understanding is you know where are you in the world it kind of deems whether you're a charity or a, of a profit-making aquarium but do you think that that's that that kind of commercial goal is embedded or do you think it still sort of sits aside from the the content i think it's a good question i think um certainly in in most markets you know europe especially because i i know the z license um uh, legislation better than you know us or asia but I, I think it's definitely more embedded in zoos and aquaria because of those parts of the zoo license legislation that say you know you need to contribute to to research and education and conservation so i think you know, even for for-profit and private aquaria and zoos, um, you know, a lot of the DNA is charitable. Um, but when it, it's, it's a really nuanced debate, isn't it? Because, you know, even, even charitable, um, you know, not-for-profit zoos and aquariums have to have commercial aims as well. You know, I think it's quite muddy. It's making me think of um, a book by Simon Sinek. Um, it's called The Infinite Game. You might have read it. But... He has this this idea that actually 
a lot of businesses don't know what game they're in, right? So some are trying to win the game that they're in. Um, but actually the aim of a, of a business or an organization is not to win the game, but to keep playing it, right? So um, I think even not-for-profit attractions need to have those kind of commercial drivers because they've got to keep bringing in the money so they can keep operating and keep doing those good things. And, and likewise, you know, the, the private and for-profit zoos and aquaria have to have those charitable elements to them because attitudes are changing and people see through those you know, purely commercial entities. And in 10 years, I don't know if people will be visiting zoos and aquaria that, that are doing the bare minimum. Um, I think you know these new new generations are coming through, and and they're not going to be going to those sort of attractions unless they're doing, you know, their utmost to to kind of look after these animals in the wild and to and to do better. Um, so I think you know it's quite a, quite a muddy topic, but yeah, I, I do think to a certain extent those charitable aims are embedded in in commercial entities and, and vice versa. I think yeah. one of the, um, sorry, Carly, I think one of the sort of cruelest things of the kind of pandemic from a visitor attraction point of view is that those organisations who have become, those charitable organisations, I should say, that have become so great at driving their own commercial income and so entrepreneurial to be able to reduce their funding on uh, their, their, their um, dependence on public funding, you know, because of austerity and all the cuts that we had in the UK, almost kind of have suffered the worst because... Mm-hmm they you know have lost all of that and haven't had those sources of public funding and so like uh, a, a charity like historic royal palaces it doesn't get any funding from the government or from the crown um we we're, were, were in a really dire position at one point um and and all that sort of com- commercial entrepreneurship that we were, we were being encouraged to do before the pandemic sort of came back to bite us really yeah i think it's hard to imagine you know, when, when you are planning to become more commercial, to make more money through your commercial revenue generating activity, is to imagine a world in which that just cannot exist. And that, I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, was such a, such a killer that, you know, everybody had been working for years to try and reduce their reliance on public funding um, by becoming more commercial. And actually suddenly that, that rug got pulled out from under a lot of people. Mm. I think hopefully what, we did see in this uh, was that p- people became more resilient to it. So actually they, they were more reactive. They had the skills to go out and think, okay, I can't sell mugs in the gift shop, but maybe I can get an online shop or maybe I can, and, and made people that little bit more mm-hmm. um, commercially minded in a way that, that at least allowed them to experiment a little bit. But yeah, I think you're right. It's just no one could imagine a world in which you weren't selling mugs in the gift shop. It's just, just unheard of. Mm-hmm. And and I get as as if I'm some sort of you know pre-organized link into the next episode. The next episode we're going to do <laughs> is all around the workshop. Um, so yeah, so I you know for those of you who know me, I love a gift shop. Um, I will bang on for eternity about the difference between non-profit and profit-making organizations. Is basically just where the money goes to and actually that they are all commercial entities in their own right even if you're not Mm. giving profit to shareholders or whoever it might be is that actually you still need to make money and I think you know Joe that really echoed with what you said is that it it doesn't really matter one you have to have your conservation and your content right for other reasons for people to visit you but also Mm. you've got to be commercial regardless of where the money goes because you need to keep 
doing what you do and you've got to pay your team members and you've got to keep you know the animals fed whatever it might be that that costs money and you know it's really important that we continue to play the game i know we have mentioned a few books in this episode so i promise i'll put the links in the in the show notes for everybody um i'll round them up afterwards because i think there's some really good books out there about actually the content um, of museums and the content of attractions and how how those attractions do what they do and keep doing what they do really important excellent well thank you both um it's been an absolute pleasure as always um and i'm I'm sure you'll be back to talk to soon so rachel if you could just tell us where can people find you um if they want to come and enjoy your stories of rod stewart and uh, other things nature reference um yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not explaining that one. They have to come and Okay, we're not going to explain it. Okay, fine. fine. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at Rach Mackay, and um, you can find my website at the recoveryroomblog.com. And actually, I should mention that there, in doing this exhibition, I developed a model for uh, supporting um, front facing staff with emotionally difficult content. So you'll find that on that website under resources. It can be adapted to really anything that you think is going to be challenging content. And um, I, f- I found it really useful. So if that's something that you're planning for, then definitely head there. Thank you. And Joe, where can we find you? Great. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and I write the occasional article. Um, I'm on Twitter, although I'm not as funny and entertaining as Rachel, so I won't <laughs> give out that one. Um, <laughs> and uh, and if you're interested in learning more about aquariums, then uh, I've got a little podcast called Aquariums Explained, where we talk about the process of uh, building and working at an aquarium. Excellent. I'm sure we will. I, I keep saying I'm going to come on it and we. I don't know what we're going to talk about. My experience of running aquariums for a little while. Yeah, um, we'll probably. shoehorn it in. <laughs> We'll, sh- we'll get it in it's fine I don't know really anything about animals anymore that knowledge has left my brain but um, I'm, I can definitely talk about what it's like to work in an aquarium um, that sounds good excellent well thank you both and it's, it's been a pleasure and I will speak to you both soon thank you